Out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand? Our passage of scripture comes today from the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be beginning in verse 15 and going through to verse 25. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All flesh is grass, and its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Near the center of our passage, Paul asks a question which no doubt the false teachers at Galatia were asking. He asked a question which perhaps the Gentile believers among the Galatians were probably thinking at this point. And he asked a question which I'm sure many of us at this point in our sermon series are asking, and I have been asked this by congregants. Why then the law? In some sense, we can summarize the whole book of Galatians by asking and answering two central questions. The first question is this. How do I obtain a right standing before God? In the first three chapters of Galatians, Paul has strenuously and unashamedly, repeatedly and conclusively said that the only way that a person can have a right standing before God and be justified is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from any works of the law. That's the answer to the first question. The second central question follows the first If the promise of Jesus Christ and all his benefits, justification, sanctification, the reception of God's Holy Spirit, comes through faith, and faith alone apart from works of the law, why then the law? 
Why did God establish the law in the first place? What significance did it have in redemptive history? How are believers even now to relate to the law? It's these kinds of questions which Paul now turns to, and he's going to spend a lot of verses in the rest of this book answering this. But today, we enter into the first Q&A section with Galatians 3:15 through 25. And he's talking here about the place and the purpose of the law and redemptive history. We will consider this passage under three simple headings. First, the intrusion of the law. That's verses 15 through 20. And second, we're going to look at the imprisonment of the law, verses 21 through 22. And third and finally, we'll look at the intent of the law. In other words, we're going to look at the law from three different aspects. It's intrusion, it's imprisonment, and it's intent. To understand this, let's begin with that first point, the intrusion of the law, verses 15 through 20. In Galatians 2, Paul has explained how he himself, through the law, died to the law, so that he might live to God, for he has been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. In Galatians 3, 10 through 14, the text we looked at in our last sermon, he has applied this argument more broadly. There are two kinds of people, Paul argued. There are those who rely on their own works, works of the law, and they exist under God's curse. And there are those who rely on faith and faith alone, and they are under God's blessing. Those are the two categories which Paul sets before the Galatians. The righteousness accounted to Abraham comes through faith in God's promise of Christ, and it's sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, quite apart from any obedience to the law, the Galatians have already received the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham, and they have this guarantee because they've received the Holy Spirit, and they should know this. Second, in chapter 3, Paul has been quoting from Scripture Oh, I skipped something, sorry. Look at verse 15 with me. That would make it more clear. Paul states, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. There are a few things worthy of note here. First, did you notice how Paul addresses them? He's addressed them in many different ways in this letter already. But here, once again, he addresses them as brothers, or brothers and sisters. Paul hasn't done this since chapter 1, verse 11. Since that time, and beginning in chapter 3, what's Paul called them? He's kind of distanced himself from them and said some pretty harsh things about them. He said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Have you now become so foolish that beginning with the Spirit, you're going to come to completion through the flesh? He distanced himself from them in this language to call them and kind of shock them into a sober way of evaluating their situation and how they are responding to this false teaching. Yet in verse 15, Paul softens his tone once again, and he addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ. No doubt this reflects his view of them, but it's also a rhetorical move that allows them to be taken off guard and to reflect on what Paul is saying. The second thing 
In chapter 3, Paul has been quoting scripture after scripture and making a very intricate argument. Here he somewhat steps back and gives them a chance to breathe and reflect. So he says, to give a human example. That's how the ESV renders the phrase. More literally, Paul says, I am speaking according to man. What he means is, I'm going to now speak according to everyday talk, stuff you are familiar with in the marketplace, and let's reason about this together. I'll give you even a human example. This is stuff you're familiar with. And the third, he states, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The word translated as covenant is diatheke. In its early usage among the Greeks, it meant very specifically a last will and testament, similar to what we have nowadays. Later on in the Greco-Roman time, it came to refer to also more simple contracts or pacts between two people. But really significant for Paul, this is the word that the Old Testament translators of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek um, translated with the Hebrew berit, which means covenant. And that's in Paul's background is that language of covenant, such as he's been talking about with Abraham and the covenant made. But we also need to understand that in their context, they're going to be thinking about last wills and testaments and contracts more broadly. Paul uses this language, which has that twofold connotations, if you will, to make one simple point. Even with a human contract or will, these are, in general, not changed or canceled out after they have been legally established. Now, Paul applies this analogy to his argument, laying it out in several steps in verses 16 through 18. First, he reiterates that the promise was given to Abraham and his offspring. Here, Paul capitalizes on the fact that God made his promise to a seed, to a singular entity. Uh, The term translated seed or offspring, Paul is well aware of, is a collective noun, much like our term offspring. We don't say offsprings when we're referring to our descendants. We just say offspring, but we understand that it can refer to many or to one. And the same is the case with peoples. We don't say peoples, though my wife does sometimes when she's addressing her students. But we don't properly say peoples, we just say people, and we know that that's plural. But Paul is playing on the fact that it is in the singular here. Now in verse 18, and he does that because it's referring to Christ, and he's going to do something really cool with that and then play on the plural aspect of it, and that's what we're going to get with our next sermon. But here we are going to focus more on the law and its centrality. Now in verse 18, Paul states regarding the covenant that God made with Abraham, according to the promise of an offspring, that the law which came 430 years later, that's just a biblical date taken from Exodus 12, I believe, if even that law did not come until 430 years after Abraham had already received this promise, How could something that comes all those years later annul a promise or a covenant which God has made? Even with humans, no one changes a covenant or a contract or a will in that way. How much more the eternal, immutable God who gave an eternal and immutable promise to Abraham? How much more could that not change? 
The law is not a new stipulation which God is tacking on to his previous contract and his established covenant. No, Paul says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul's point is that Abraham is proof that God's blessing, the inheritance promised to Abraham as offspring, does not come through works of the law, but through believing God's promise, even as Abraham believed and was accounted righteous. The law which came many years later does not change God's fundamental dealing with his people throughout all of history, relating to them according to a promise, going all the way back to the garden, and the promise of a seed. God relates to his people through promise and by faith, and the law does not go back on that. And this brings us to Paul's question, why then the law? If God's inheritance comes through promise and is received by faith, why did God establish the law? If a right standing before God and an imputed righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, why did God set down stipulations of his law? Paul answers very simply, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, I said very clearly, but what does Paul mean when he says, because of transgressions? Does he mean that the law was added to restrain sins and transgressions? Does he mean that it was added to provide a standard by which to judge and punish sinners among their nation? There's some truth to both of these suggestions, but I think here Paul has something else in mind in saying, because of transgressions. Paul's argument here is very similar to what he will write later to the Romans. In Romans 3.20, he says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 4.15, he says that the law brings wrath, and that where there is no law, there is no transgression. In Romans 5.13, he says that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And in Romans 7, 7 through 12, Paul talks about how the knowledge of the law both defines sin for us, but it also exacerbates it because we as sinful creatures, when we hear of a law, we want to break it. And that's Paul's argument in Romans. And I think that's Paul is making a very similar point here in Galatians. He is saying that the law was added in order to show sinfulness. Defining evil actions as transgressions and to increase sin, both of which showed the Israelites that they had no hope in themselves, but must look to the promised seed. In this, we begin to understand the reason for the intrusion of the law in redemptive history in the first place. It served to reinforce to the Israelites the absolute need which they had for a Savior. Paul closes this section by highlighting the inferiority of the law given through Moses to the promise given to Abraham. You notice he highlights that the law was put in place through angels. That's a common tradition that came about in Judaism and it's reflected even in other parts of the New Testament. That the law was given through angels and through a mediator, referring to the human agency of Moses. So there's kind of a double separation between God and the people of Israel, whereas God spoke the promise to Abraham as to a friend 
Paul's highlighting that the promise takes priority. One thing we need to keep in mind as we are studying Galatians is that Paul is very much engaged in a theology of crisis, a theology on the go in the thralls of ministry. As such, we should not expect him to give his fully fleshed out understanding of every aspect of the law and its purpose. But he has a very specific situation that he's dealing with. And if we want to get a full orb view of Paul's view of the law, we have to go to his other letters and acts. But in this letter, Paul is strenuously arguing against a deadly error being spread among the Galatian church by false teachers. Peddling a false gospel, these teachers are denying the sufficiency of Christ to fully save those who trust in him and are saying that something more is necessary. Namely, circumcision and obedience to the law. I know you've heard this probably in every sermon on Galatians so far, but that's because Paul thinks it's important. So you're going to hear more and more as we go through this letter. They were saying that something more was necessary, and Paul says, no, Christ is a complete and sufficient Savior. In response to this very specific situation, Paul comes with a two-pronged argument. First, Abraham, the father of Israel, was himself saved only by faith in God's promise of a seed before there ever was a law that was given. Second, the law, which you think is your standard of righteousness, which you think is going to give you the good standing before God, actually the law was given to show that you are a great transgressor and that you need a Savior. That's why the law was given. They have it completely reversed And backward, the law is a mirror by which they can see themselves and their own sinfulness and to express what they deserved in themselves. Therefore, like Abraham, Paul is saying that the Galatians must look to God's promised seed who has come. In our last sermon, we talked about how God established the the sacrament of circumcision following Abraham and Sarah's sin of trying to fulfill the promise through their own fleshly efforts with that terrible situation with Hagar. So God gave him this very physical act which reminded him every time he saw it and every time he did it with his sons that he's had them circumcised that you are not going to fulfill the promise through your fleshly efforts. The law in a similar way served as this for the people of Israel as a whole. When they see the law and its demands, when they see all that God stipulates, including circumcision, they are reminded that you are not going to fulfill the promise through your fleshly efforts. You need to have faith in the seed which I promised long ago, even to Eve, then to Abraham. You need to look to this in faith. Paul speaks equally clear to us. Perhaps you're here today and you're not exactly religious, not really a believer in God, but you think that if there is a God, he probably thinks good of you because you're a decent fellow or, or so. Well, this word teaches us that, no, you are a great transgressor. There is no hope in yourself. You need to look to the promised seed who now has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you've, you've believed God's promise and in your initial salvation, but now you're trusting in your own strength and you're looking to set up your own moral standard through obedience to God 
It's law and trying to set yourself up as righteous before him. No, friend, you are a great transgressor in need of a great Savior that never changes. You relate to God by his promise through faith. But if you're here today and you know yourself to be a transgressor, do not despair, but draw near to Christ in faith. It's only Jesus Christ who frees us from the curse of the law. Which brings us to our next point. We've just looked at the intrusion of the law. Now let's look at the imprisonment of the law. In the prior verses, Paul has entertained into the question, why then the law? So far, he's established that the blessing of Abraham comes through faith in the promised seed, and that a right standing before God comes through faith in Christ. Whereas the law only brings knowledge of sin and aggravation of it. In light of this argument, Paul introduces a second question regarding the law. He says in verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? To which Paul responds, and his famous Meganoita, by no means, may it never be, God forbid. To understand this question, we need to understand Paul's answer through the logic that he has. So far, he's argued that the covenant comes through the promise of God and is received through faith in Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. In accordance with this, and on top of it, Paul has asked, why then the law? He answered that question by saying that the law was added because of transgression, meaning that the law was added to the Abrahamic covenant to Israel. And to all of us, that God added this stipulation to give us a sense of our own sin, and that was true of Israel of old. And it even serves to that purpose now to the Galatians believers as he's talking to them. In this, we see that the law and the promise are not contrary to each other. Thus, Paul says, is the law then contrary to the promise? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This passage is most significant in Paul's argument in Galatians. Why did God give the law The false teachers were arguing that the law had been given to be a standard for righteousness by which you might obtain life through becoming that that person worthy of receiving God's gift. Paul was saying if that were the case, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Paul knows that this was never the case. That was never God's intention. For the law which is given does not have the power to give you to keep it. The law does not offer that, and that was never God's purpose in giving it to his people. In saying this, Paul is affirming that the law was never given to man that they might establish a righteousness of their own, but so that they might understand their sin and their need of a Savior. With the fall of our father, Adam, a righteousness according to the law is impossible for all of us. This is why Paul states in verse 22, But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the purpose of God in the scriptures, in the giving of the law. When he says the scriptures, he's probably thinking particularly of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but he also would include all the rest of the Old Testament. Everyone, both Jew and Gentile, in terms of the law and its demands, stand condemned. The law was never given as a means by which 
we could become righteous in our own power, in our own strength. For the law only and ever shows everyone, all of us, that we are sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, stand under God's wrath apart from faith. God had first given his promise to Abraham that he and all those of like faith might be justified by faith in his promise of a coming seed. With the command of circumcision and the giving of the law, the Lord testified to his standard of righteousness. In doing this, he demonstrated that righteousness would not come through circumcision or through obedience to the law, but through faith in God's promise of a coming seed who would fulfill all righteousness. Through the law, then, freedom does not come, but imprisonment. For the stipulations of the law do not show us or give us an ability to keep them. But in God's grace, in our failures, in the failures of Israel at that time, he provided a way of atonement, even for Israel. To the Galatians, Paul holds out this hope. The law in itself brings imprisonment. But to those who look to Christ, the seed of Abraham, and the fulfillment of the law, there is hope and freedom. But to those who are trusting in their own works, there is only and ever imprisonment and condemnation. That's the situation for the Galatians. They're trying to reverse redemptive history, and they're trying to place themselves once again in imprisonment. Paul's saying, you have the Holy Spirit. You have freedom. Don't turn back to slavery. Paul's saying the same thing to us, to any of us who are trusting in our own works or in our own good deeds to be right with God. If this describes you, friend, you're imprisoned. And the gospel brings you freedom. Believe its promise. Receive that freedom which only the Spirit gives. By having faith in Christ, we understand the intent of the law, which brings us to our final point. We've looked at the intrusion of the law, and we've just considered the imprisonment of the law. Now let's look finally at the intent or the intention of God's law, verses 23 through 25. Earlier in 3.13, Paul has invited the Galatians to identify themselves with the historic people of God, Israel of old, saying that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's calling on the Galatians and even us to identify with the people of God by using this term, us. And he does something similar here in verse 23, saying, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The Galatians are to identify themselves with the historic people of God who were held under the imprisonment of the law. He says, we were held in imprisonment, which exposed their sin. But notice that this imprisonment was both temporal and telic. The Old Testament administration, the Old Covenant administration of the covenant of grace, which was accompanied with the imprisonment of the law, was temporal with a definite end in sight. At that time, the law took precedent as an orienting principle for the people of God, prescribing punishments, calling them to repentance, promising them propitiation. But in all these things, it was pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the administration of the Old Covenant with its orienting principle of the law, not that the law would make you righteous before God, but that the law showed you your need for redemption, and it showed you how that's going to come through the atonement which God provides. So with this orienting principle of the law, it was not only temporal, but it was also telic or purposeful. It had not only a temporal end, but also a teleological end, and both of which coalesced in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of his spirit, the faith, as Paul says it, has come. No longer is the law the orienting principle of the people of God and their relationship to God, but now the orienting principle for us is the faith, our faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this determines all our actions and behaviors and how we relate to God and to one another. Of course, going all the way back to Abraham and beyond, faith was always the way, gain, the way one gained a right standing before God. But that faith was carried out under the, the strictures of the law. But now that faith operates within the sphere of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're no longer imprisoned. We are now set free. Paul explains this reality further in verse 24, saying, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So Paul gives another set of temporal and telic aspects of the law. It functioned up and it found its purpose in the person and work of Christ. But whereas formerly he described the law in terms of a prison warden, now he describes it in terms of a guardian. The word translated as guardian is pedagogos. It's a compound of two words, pes, boy, which means boy or a young child, and ego, I lead. Literally, pedagogos means somebody who's a boy leader. In the ancient world, the somewhat well-to-do families would have appoint usually a male slave who had one job. He was invested with the authority of the father of the house, and he made sure that that kid got to school, came back from school, and if he misbehaved anywhere in between, he had the authority to punish him. He could give out the spankings. And that's what he would do. And Paul is using this as a helpful metaphor to understand what the law was for the people of God. They were God's people in the Old Testament under age. The the infant church, as it were. And as such, they needed a pedagogos. They needed a guardian to make sure that they stayed within God's covenant by always reinforcing faith to them. As the ancient pedagogos had to guide the child to school for instruction, so too the law drives us to the school of Christ, wherein we learn that we can only be justified by grace through faith. Paul concludes, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We were imprisoned until the coming faith kept under watch by a pedagogos, by our guardian. But now the faith has come. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the law, and he writes that law on our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise given all the way back to Abraham.
In all of this, we see that the law was a temporary provision which was put in place for a church under age, which needed to understand its imprisonment to sin, and it needed a guardian to lead it to Christ who was to come. From this vantage point, we can better understand Paul's frustration and fear with the Galatians. With the coming of Christ, with the reception of him and his Holy Spirit by faith, the Galatians are not part of the church in its childhood. They are part of the church as it's come to age. They belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come. The faith has come. You can't reverse or revert back to that servile state of imprisonment, that condition under the law. To seek to do so is utter foolishness. Oh, foolish Galatians, why would you try to do this? That's exactly what they're trying to do, though, with circumcision and obedience to the law. The same is true for us. When we seek to earn a right standing before God through the works of the law or just any of our own human efforts or doing, all we're doing is proving our poverty and evidencing our imprisonment to sin, to the flesh, and the devil. Yet when we acknowledge that our right standing before God is based on our faith in His Son and in gratitude for this grace, we seek to do what is pleasing to God by the Holy Spirit, which, yes, is revealed in the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but we do this as sons and daughters of God who are free, and we do it out of gratitude by the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we're in a better place now to understand the relation of the law to the people of God of old and to ourselves. The law was an intrusion into redemptive history. Abraham was saved by grace through faith in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how everyone, everywhere, at all times and forever will be the only way that you can be made right with God. Faith in Christ. That was true of the Jews and it's true of us. But God imposed his law on the people of old because of transgressions so that they would see their need for a Savior and that they would look to him in faith. Therefore, the law brought about this imprisonment. In proving them to be transgressors, it showed them that they could never keep all of its stipulations. So it showed them that they needed atonement, which God provided through the sacrificial system, all of which were shadows pointing to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it pointed them to him, that ultimate sacrifice. And this then was always and ever the intention of the law. The law was both temporal and telic. It had a finite end and it had a purposeful end, all centered on the coming of the person and work of Christ. Now that the faith has come, union with Christ and a life lived by faith is now the orienting principle of the people of God, of us. Through union with Christ and through his Holy Spirit, the law is being fulfilled in us by the Holy Spirit who will one day bring us to perfection and make us like our Savior, but always and ever through the mediation of that Savior. For much of our time here, we have been talking about redemptive history, God's acts of salvation in the history of his people. But as Pastor Joel said the other week, we all have a bit of our own many redemptive history. For some of us, the banner of God's blessing has always stood over us since our infancy. I hope that's true of many of you, that you've always known the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Yet for others of us, 
We had to taste the bitterness of the curse and the imprisonment of the flesh until the Son of Righteousness appeared and shone in our eyes with healing in His wings. Yet for all of us, redemptive history is played out each week, in a sense, in our public worship. God calls us to worship, and we respond in praise and asking for His presence. In His presence and under the reading of the law, we are brought to see that we are transgressors, And confess our sins. But in his grace, the Lord then gives us a word of forgiveness through Jesus Christ and his mediation. And it is then that we profess our needs. We hear his word read. And in gratitude, we seek to practice that in our lives. I hope that you see the purposeful intent of our liturgy as it takes us through the great stages of God's redemptive history and his saving of his people. But we've not come to Mount's. Sinai today. We have not come to the flames and thunders. We come to Mount Zion. The gospel does not come to us through the administration of angels, through the hands of a merely human mediator. For our mediator is God and man, Christ Jesus. And he confers his blessings directly to you, even this day, through the power of his Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. We are not washed with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Christ Jesus, who ever lives on high to make intercession for us. As you behold and participate even in redemptive history, as God is still working in hearts to save you today, may this be a part of your redemptive history. Lay hold of Christ by faith, receive his benefits and his blessings. He alone brings freedom from imprisonment and make slaves into sons and daughters of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are humbled and we're thankful. We are great transgressors. We confess this is true. But Christ is an even greater Savior. We thank you for your promise and we thank you for your law which drives us to Christ, who brings healing, who brings freedom, and who gives us your spirit by which we cry out to you as a father. We pray that through the reading and preaching your word of your word, you would build us up in all grace, and that you would conform us to the image of him who is the radiance of your glory, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death each time we do this. We talked about redemptive history, but God gave us one redemptive historical act to ever put before our eyes and to feed our faith and nourish us. And that's what you see here. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed, and his body, which was given. 
Today we've talked about the people of God and identifying with them. When you come to this table, when you partake of these elements, you're saying something about yourself. You're no longer imprisoned. You're free. You're no longer slaves. You're sons and daughters of Abraham and sons and daughters of God. That's why this is important. This is a meal for the family. This is a family table stretching into heaven. And we sit with our great high priest who had his body put on a cross, shedding his blood for us and for our salvation. If you have doubts of God's love, look at the table. God sent forth his son to suffer what you could never truly suffer. If you have doubts about your own salvation, God gives you this meal to encourage your heart, to feed you. It's directly by his Holy Spirit. He is working grace in your heart and faith. He's not present physically here, but he's present even more so spiritually. And we, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith, ascend to Mount Zion on high and we're feasting with the king and foretaste of that ultimate feast. As such, this meal is for the family. This is a meal for those who have professed their faith, those who have been baptized, those who are members of a Bible-believing church. If that describes you and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know yourself to be a great transgressor, you're welcome to sit with the family. You're welcome to dine with the king. But if it doesn't describe you, friend, I would just ask you to let it pass because Paul will go on to say that this cup and this bread, which is meant for blessing, can also be a way of bringing a curse on you. But as we often say in this church, as we ask you to let the elements pass by, never let Christ pass by, but receive him by faith, even as you are sitting among us today. As such, let's pray now that the Lord would bless these simple elements to our growth in grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, there are those who are cursed and there's those who are blessed. How thankful we are that you bring blessing and you require faith only of us. And it's a faith which is a gift from you that you work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray that this meal in this place would be a meal of blessing for all those who are here, those who partake and those who do not partake. May we all lay hold of Christ by faith and be built up in him who is our head. We pray that you would bless these simple elements and by them have us feed on heaven's richest store, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.